Over these summer Sundays, we've been letting Jesus teach and reteach us how to pray so that we're built up as praying disciples and built up as a praying church. If you're going to build anything well, it follows that you need to stick close to the blueprint given for how to go about it. Think IKEA. Well, we've been seeing how Jesus has given us his blueprint for prayer in the words of the Lord's Prayer. It's so helpful that we pray these words together Sunday by Sunday, not least because this provides us with an opportunity to reflect upon how we've been praying the rest of the week. Do my priorities in prayer map onto the priorities we see in the Lord's Prayer? Do my concerns in prayer arise from the concerns Jesus highlights? The blueprint he gives is no constraining framework. Whereas we might expect it to flatten our prayers, instead it expands and fills them out, our prayer life becoming far richer for it. Indeed, by reorganizing our priorities and resetting our concerns, it leads us to pray for that which we would otherwise be slow to pray, and that which we find ourselves reluctant ever to pray. The challenge is perhaps never greater than when it comes to praying Your will be done. That's a prayer that doesn't tend to sit easy with us. For at least two reasons. First, internally, you and I are wired up to do life in such a way that wherever possible, it's my will that is done. So, uh, first thing in the morning... Is it going to be a caffeinated coffee or a spinach smoothie? I just love the aroma and taste of coffee. And my mind reasons that I really need caffeine to make a good start to the day. So I choose coffee every time. In the choices I make day by day, among the options set before me, That which my heart loves the most, it's that which my will chooses. A choice which my mind then goes on to justify. This is the default way in which we all operate, ensuring that when there is no real opposition, it is our own will that gets done. Second, externally, you and I are pressured to do life in such a way that wherever possible, it's my will that is done and is done to the full. The message of our surrounding culture is one which tells us that freedom of choice is our greatest good. Such a good thing that the freer we are in those choices, the happier we will be. 
So allow no one else to impose their will upon you. Anyone who makes that attempt is to be looked upon with suspicion because any such move is today viewed as inherently wrong. These, our internal wiring and this external pressure, are two reasons why we may struggle to pray, your will be done. You see, in praying this, you're at least opening yourself up to the possibility that your will then won't be done. Indeed, when every person first starts to pray, and when any person first begins praying about any issue, it's highly probable that their will won't be done. Your will be done. In praying this prayer, we're asking that God's will be enthroned in our lives. In the same breath, we're also asking that our own will be dethroned. We tend not to be those who abdicate the throne of our lives with ease. Ordinarily, we'd only likely do it reluctantly. But what can move us to do it willingly? We've come to this episode in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26, for uh, one particular reason. This is the one place where Jesus is explicitly using the precise phrasing he gives in the Lord's Prayer. There are other places where we see him implicitly praying in line with his blueprint, but only here is Jesus using precisely the same words. So we've been given far more help on this area of prayer uh, than any other. See verse 39. Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink from it, may your will be done. Verse 44, he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing, your will be done. Jesus praised this prayer not once, not twice, but three times. What's the occasion for it? From the moment that it was revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus has been openly teaching his disciples what is key for them to understand. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. For Jesus, his death has always been central to his understanding 
of what he has come to do. Not simply that he will die, so resigning himself to fate, but that he must die, so purposefully ordering his steps to present himself into his executioner's hands at just the right time. That's why here in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus planned a last supper with his disciples the way he did. That's why he took bread, saying this was his body, and took a cup, saying the wine was his blood. He was preparing his disciples for his now imminent, violent death. So although at every turn his disciples failed to understand, there is no lack of comprehension on Jesus' part. He steadily stepped towards the suffering awaiting him, unflinching. Only here in Gethsemane, as he enters this garden to pray, Jesus experiences something he hadn't preempted, something he wasn't prepared for, something he could never have prepared himself for. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Sorrowful here speaks of being in agony. And underlying that word troubled is the idea of being horrified and shocked. Jesus' execution still awaited him the next day. He is going to die on a Roman cross, but something so horrified Jesus this night that he thought he would die there and then. There at the Last Supper, back in chapters 27 and 28, Jesus lifts the cup he wants his disciples to drink from, a cup which speaks of Jesus' blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, a cup of blessing. But for us to drink from that cup, Jesus must first drink down another cup, one which the prophet Isaiah speaks of as the cup of the Lord's wrath, the cup that drained to its dregs makes people stagger. In other words, a cup of cursing. Jesus is about to drink down that very cup and stagger. That cup hasn't been handed to him yet, but it's as if he gets a first sip of it that night and is already ready to die. 
You see, as Jesus goes into this garden to pray, he's, he's seeking some consolation, some comfort from his father in preparation for the coming ordeal. But nothing could have prepared him for the realization that no comfort would be forthcoming. The son who had only ever known his father's presence, now in Gethsemane, senses his father's absence. Rather than heaven, he gets hell. Jesus is given a foretaste of the finality he will experience on the cross. But why now, this night? Could this not have waited until the next day? A lot is about to change in the next few verses. Judas the betrayer is coming. And Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of those who will kill him. From that moment, Jesus will be locked in. He'll have no choice in the matter. He will be crucified, whether he wills it or not. The question stands, is Jesus still willing? There now acutely aware of the abyss that is about to swallow him, is he still willing to drink the cup? Tomorrow he will have no choice. Tonight he does. After all, the disciples have fallen asleep. No one else is around. No witnesses if he simply chose to walk away. But Jesus turns to prayer. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then Jesus returns to prayer. May your will be done. Then Jesus returns to prayer again, saying the same thing. Not once, not twice, but three times. No one coerces him into this. This is Jesus' voluntary free choice. It is love that compels him. Jesus knew that for us to drink from the cup of blessing, he must first drink down the cup of cursing. No cold calculation in his head would lead him to choose that cup. But Jesus loves those disobedient disciples. Now fully aware of the ultimate cost to himself, still he chooses for them, he chooses for us. So he now prays in agony, but with no reluctance, your will be done. Jesus finds himself praying this at a far extremity that none of us would or could find ourselves in. There is no Gethsemane for us. Yet there are those circumstances we would never have preempted, those situations we haven't prepared for, and certainly would never have freely chosen, that you and I do find ourselves in. In those places, how willingly do we pray, your will be done? Few find it easy to abdicate the throne, and when clouds gather 
and the circumstances of our life start to look particularly bleak, who of us doesn't most naturally cry out for my will to be done? At our bleakest, we may even find ourselves shaking our fist towards heaven, questioning God's will and his right to do as he has done. Well, there's nothing wrong with the crying out. It could, in fact, be a very good place to begin, as Jesus himself did there in this garden. But don't stop there. We need to to press on until we find rest. We'll never find any rest in pursuing our own will. We'll only find rest in pursuing his will for our lives. Jesus shows us what it is to pursue God's will, even in the far extremity, right through to the end. But there's more than that on offer to us here. We tend not to be those who pray your will be done with ease. Ordinarily, we'd only likely do it reluctantly. But what can move us to do it freely and willingly? Whenever we pray this prayer, we must pray it with faith. That is, we must pray it looking to Jesus, recounting the circumstances in which these words found themselves on his lips. There, in that place where every ground for trusting his father had seemingly been removed, still Jesus entrusts himself to the father's will, even as he was about to be plunged into darkness. How? It is out of love for those disobedient disciples, out of love for us, that Jesus chooses to pray, your will be done, and willingly accepts it. Let's marvel at the magnitude of that act. As we've sung, I'm lost in wonder. I'm lost in love. I'm lost in praise forevermore. Because of Jesus' unfailing love, I am forgiven. I am restored. Here in the place where you are standing this morning, it may be that every ground for your trusting in the Father seems to have been removed progressively erased from your life by hardship upon hardship. It's as if you've been plunged into darkness. What will keep you entrusting yourself to the Father's will? It can only be your love for Jesus in response to his unfailing love for you. The more we grow in our love for him, the more we will freely choose for him. You'll find that if he was willing to drink down such a bitter cup for you, 
you're now willing to endure a lesser suffering for him. Each of us can pray, your will be done, and willingly accept the Father's will, confident that with him, the present darkness is really but a shadow that will soon pass. As it was for Jesus, so it will be for you and I. The bottom line is this. Although we are often reluctant to pray this prayer and perhaps find it the most difficult to pray, this is also the prayer that calls forth the most faith from us. The prayer that calls forth the most faith from us, as it did from Jesus himself. So there could be no better or bolder prayer for any of us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen.